Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, President Biden and President Putin had their meeting in Switzerland, in Geneva, I believe it was. And, uh, you know, basically what came out of it is well, a lot of happy talk. And, you know, we'll see. We, we probably really won't know if any, there was any kind of confrontation or, you know, any of the really, shall we say, important details were actually worked out probably for a few days. But there was a protest of the Biden-Putin summit, right? How dare Joe Biden meet with Putin? Over at the writing.com, they're talking about how, you know, one of the right-wing websites said, uh, Biden gave Putin exactly what he wanted. I mean, talk about irony. But anyhow, this protest was uh, conducted in a boat in the, you know, Lake Geneva, Lake, right? This boat was, uh, (laughs) here is Osama bin Laden's niece, waving a Trump won flag, W-O-N, Trump won the election flag, protesting, this is Noor bin Laden is her name, in Lake Geneva, Switzerland, waving this banner with other Donald Trump supporters. Incredible. Meanwhile, Fox News is doing everything they can to make racism and misogyny and bigotry acceptable again in American society. It's like, you know, we go two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back in every measure as we become a more egalitarian society. We did this with, uh, you know, the right of women to vote. We did this with the right of black people to vote. We did this with the, we could go through a whole long list of things. America does something positive there's a reaction from the troglodytes within the Republican Party, the conservatives, the freak out. We step back a little bit. And it, and it seems to be like the high point, the most recent high point of racial acceptance or uh, racial harmony in the United States and, and whatever the opposite of misogyny is, uh, you know, accepting the equality of women was during the Obama presidency. We had a black man as president. We had a woman as secretary of state. We didn't have a woman as vice president, but hey, we had Joe Biden. He's president now. So along comes Fox now with, you know, a thousand mentions of critical race theory in almost every single context, every single time they mention it, pretending it's something you know, I have to tell you, prior to six months ago, I'd never heard of critical race theory. I mean, outside of the academic world and a few people who are involved in activism within the black community, this is a phrase that was largely, certainly among white people in America, it's a phrase that was completely unknown. And so Fox and the Republican Party look at this and go say, and say, hey, this has got the word race in it. It's got the word theory in it. Like, you know, Darwin's theory of evolution. People hate theories, and at least right-wingers do. And it's got the word critical. Like they're trying to criticize us. So let's invent a meaning for it, which is exactly what Fox and the Republicans did. And not just Fox. I mean, the entire right-wing media sphere. And what does this do to America? 
how extreme is this, in your opinion? I think that the GOP has reached the point, the Republican Party has reached the point where they are incapable of doing anything meaningful for the American people. All this, uh, for example, all this hysteria that, that they are cranking out about so-called critical race theory, which is a phrase that has become completely meaningless. Republicans have attributed things to critical race theory that no academic ever suggested. Oh, it means one race is more superior to another. Or, oh, it means that white people need to feel guilty. None of that was ever proposed. No, this is stuff that Fox News has literally made up. And this is the direction that the Republican Party is going, is, you know, don't pay attention to the fact that we are, you know, aggressively, we the Republicans, they are aggressively trying to rip off the American people. Oh, please don't look at that. Instead, look over here, critical race theory. Oh my God. And this is what Greg Abbott is doing down in Texas. Now, the essence of my piece is from a quote uh, from many years ago. This was when uh, Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States. It was a, it was a speech he gave to a, a Republican women's club in the 1950s while he was president. And uh, President Eisenhower said, if a political party does not have its foundation in the determination to advance the cause of what is right and moral, then it is not a political party. It is merely a conspiracy to seize power. Now, I agree with that analysis. If a political party ceases to have the interests of the people at heart and instead only operates on behalf of special interests, that political party has fully become what James Madison warned us about in Federalist 10. It has become a faction, a group that is adverse, was the, use, uh, the word that uh, Madison used in Federalist 10, adverse to the interest of the country. In other words, opposed to the interests of the country. Not just not working for the interests of the country, but actively working against the interests of the country. And that is today's Republican Party. Uh, you know, our example for today is the, you know, the corrupt governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. I mean, he's the poster child for the Republican Party's sellout to the fossil fuel industry. And the consequences are probably going to kill more Texans this summer. I mean, his, he's got all these, Abbott is running all these scams, right, to divert attention away. You know, let's, let's go to, well, let's, let's see, uh, Texas is going to proclaim, this is what he did yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, uh, proclaim that under the Tenth Amendment, we are sovereign from the United States. We, uh, we don't have to pay attention to, I mean, it was just, it was a bunch of word salad. It's not a thing. Texas, like most red states, takes in more federal dollars than they send to Washington, D.C. So the last thing they're going to do is say, no, thank you to Washington, D.C., right? Don't send us any, any uh, highway money. Don't send us any food stamp money. Don't send us any, any uh, unemployment money. Don't send us any Medicare or Medicaid money or Social Security. No, they're not going to say that. I mean, the real, the real uh, you know, so-called welfare queen is Greg Abbott among most of the other red states. Blue states send more money to D.C. than they get back. Red states take more money from D.C. than they get back. And they think they're slick for doing it, right? Back in 2014, I mean, this is how this plays out. Back in 2014, uh, Denton, Texas, which is both a town and a county, they're both named Denton. The uh, good citizens of Denton, Texas, decided that they were sick and tired of fracking, poisoning their, their wells and their air. And so they passed a law basically saying that it was a ballot initiative banning fracking in Denton, Texas, in the, in the county, in the entire county, including the city. The Republicans in the Texas legislature responded with House Bill 40, which Governor Abbott enthusiastically signed that, and this is quoting from the Texas Tribune, quote, gives the state exclusive jurisdiction over oil and gas operations and prohibits local municipalities from creating ordinances that ban, limit, or regulate oil and gas operations. I mean, this is the Texas Republican motto. Screw the people. We do what's necessary to help out the, the fossil fuel billionaires who own us. It's, that, that, that's really it. 
And this, this goes back to the last, well, the, before the last, Rick Perry was the last before him, was the last, you know, was the, the sellout governor, the, the corrupt governor, George W. Bush, who himself is a, a fossil fuel multimillionaire. And George W. Bush in 1999 broke the Texas power grid from all the other states around it so that it would, no, it would no longer be engaged in interstate commerce, so it could no longer be regulated by the federal government. And this is what Bush said. He, he called this, quote, the nation, this is in 1999, Governor George Bush of Texas, quote, it, it, he had just engaged in, quote, the nation's most extensive experiment in electrical deregulation. Well, that experiment killed 700 people last winter. And not only that, this is what the Wall Street Journal, not exactly a leftist publication, Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal, this is what they wrote last month. Quote, those deregulated Texas residential consumers paid $28 billion more for their power since 2004 than they would have paid at the rates charged to the customers of the state's traditional utilities, according to the Wall Street Journal's analysis of data from the Federal Energy Information Administration. In other words, Texas consumers just got ripped off to the tune of $28 billion. And where did that $28 billion go? Didn't go to build out the grid or strengthen the grid or prepare the grid for last winter or for this summer. No, it went into the pockets of the CEOs of all these various companies. It went into the pockets of the stockholders of these various companies. And it went into the pockets of the Republican politicians who are heavily subsidized by these various companies. And who's paying for it now? the Texas small businesses, the Texas citizens. And not just paying for absurdly expensive electric, uh, they're also paying for the billions of dollars in property damage that were caused by the failure of the grid last winter. And now the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is forecasting one of the hottest and driest summers literally in the history of Texas because of the climate crisis. And yesterday, the temperatures were like, they hit a high of 97 in Houston, as I recall. And as a result of that, ERCOT, you know, the, 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 the oversight group, and Greg Abbott came out and asked Texans to keep their air conditioners uh, basically turned off uh, below 78 degrees. You know, keep it 78 or warmer, please. Can't have the grid failing. This is the same guy who issued an executive order saying to individual businesses in Texas, you may not mandate a mask. Why? Because we can't have government interfering in things. But now he's got government saying, but you have to set your thermostat above 78. Do you think Texans are going to rebel? I don't know. Then burrowing deeper into the warm embrace of the fossil fuel billionaires, the Texas legislature just passed Senate Bill 13, which, quote, would require the state of Texas and its entities, including the state's pension funds and the state's K-12 school endowment, to cut ties with companies that refuse to invest in fossil fuels. If your company wants to do business with Texas or have them invest in your company's stocks and bonds, you better throw some money at the fossil fuel industry. I mean, this is just pure corruption. We have the gun industry making billions while America experiences literally daily mass shootings that Republicans refuse to do anything about. We have 30,000 gun deaths a year in the United States. We have 500,000 bankruptcies because somebody in the family got sick, something that never happens in other developed countries. And a landscape littered with destroyed lives and suicides as a result of these things. Not to mention, you know, uh, a trillion and a half dollars in student debt. The Republican Party, in my opinion, has become, as Eisenhower warned, merely a conspiracy to seize power. Is it hyperbole to say they deserve the political death penalty? That they should go the way of the Whigs? I think that, you know, if the party can't reform itself, and I'm not seeing any evidence of that, I mean, even the, even the anti-Trump Republicans are still gung-ho for, hey, let's support fossil fuels. There's no such thing as global warming. Everything's good. Just keep shoveling that money into Coke Industries and other, you know, and, and ExxonMobil and et cetera. Where do we go with this? Donald Trump attempted a coup. We now know. We have the receipts. What are we going to do about it? I think it's time for the 14th Amendment. Stick around. 
And we'll pick up Mark in San Francisco. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Well, I think I wanted to talk to you, Tom, about the end game that mm-hmm. the Republicans are running, I believe. I think they want a license to steal from the middle class and poor. And They've and, been doing that since 1980, the, Mark. Yeah, well, that's where they're going. They don't want to have to answer to anything anymore by rigging the voting system. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, they've been doing that since 1982. I mean, I, this, this Paul Weyrich clip just never gets old. This is the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation in 1980 when he was working on the Reagan campaign, speaking to a, a, a church group of Republicans in Dallas, Texas, uh, during the Reagan election. The How many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome? Good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. That was 41 years ago, Mark. 41 years ago, and their quest now is to just not have anybody that's a Democrat vote. Yep. And if they're able to do that, they won't have to answer for anything they do to us. Yeah. And no, I think they I, want a license to steal. That's what I think. I, c- I completely get it, and I completely agree with you. And I think it's, uh, you know, <laughs> the reason why we need to be taking this very, very seriously. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Thomas in Mossy Head, Florida. Hey, Thomas, what's up? Hey, uh, I've got a Q-line problem, Tom. I uh-huh. was uh, just fiddling around on some of the QAnon sites to see what kind of back crap crazy they're up to. And somehow or another, they got my phone number and my email. And really, they, yeah, and they've been calling me relentlessly, emailing me, wanting donations and all other kind of crazy crap. Well, when they call, as soon as I see who you know, they talk to me, I hang up and block that number. Twenty minutes later, they call from a different number. And this has gone probably ten, fifteen calls. Wow. And yeah, and I've got a business, so I can't just change my number or change my email. Yeah. And I don't know if uh, you know what to do about it or possibly warn your audience to be careful what you, yeah. <laughs> what you Had you with. requested information? I mean, had you given that information to anybody, or did they, was it? Uh... No, I think they hacked it somehow, although I was probably on three different sites. Yeah. And uh, huh. uh, they... Uh, one of them was, uh, would you like to respond to this comment? Well, I've got talk to text, so I kind of unloaded on them. Uh, you know, so that's probably how, how, how it came through. Um, I yeah. don't know what to do, Thomas. I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. I, I, uh, uh, I don't know. I, you know, what I've done is, is just put my phone on, you know, into the system where if the caller is not in your contact list, the phone doesn't even ring. But like you said, you've got a business. I don't think you can you can do that. Yeah, I, can't so, do that. Yeah. I don't have an easy answer for you, Thomas. I'm sorry. I really don't. But keep us up to date. Give me a, give me a shout next week and let me know how it's going. See if it settles down. Eh? Thank you very much for the call. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Our book today is Can We All Be Feminists? It's a collection of essays edited by Jane Eric Udori. First essay is from Charlotte Shane. It's called No Wave Feminism. The more I learn about the intersecting oppressive forces that continue to shape the Western world, 
colonialism, patriarchy, capitalism, xenophobia, and racism, and the network of cruel social machinery to which these systems give rise, incarceration, crippling debt, disenfranchisement, deportation, and so on, the less sense it makes to use gender as the primary lens through which to regard human-engineered suffering. Feminism doesn't feel like the sharpest weapon to wield against white supremacy or border policing, for instance, or even the best tool with which to approach basic civic concerns like vibrant schools. That's not because those issues don't impact women. Obviously, they directly and indirectly impact many. But they don't necessarily impact women more or in dramatically different ways than they do men. In other words, the most significant challenges these issues present aren't tethered to one's sex. And so prioritizing gender above other aspects of identity limits one's realm of ethical responses. Here's an example. American prisons often keep female prisoners shackled while they give birth. There are variations on the theme. Some women are shackled during labor. Some are unshackled, but then shackled again almost immediately afterward. And almost all are shackled while heavily pregnant. There's some variation of what shackling entails, too. It can mean being cuffed at the wrists or at the ankles or both or cuffed to a hospital bed or chained at the waist. Articulating these details makes the sadism even starker. A class action federal lawsuit in 2017 alleged more than 40 women at the Milwaukee County Jail suffered this horror. It was preceded by lawsuits in 2014 and 2016 against that same jail for similar practice. But the appalling practice is hardly confined to one city or one state. In 2015, New York prisons were found to be shackling prisoners in labor in spite of a state law that made it illegal to do so. And according to a 2016 report by the Prison Birth Project and Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts, jails and prisons in Massachusetts were guilty of similar violations. Most feminists probably agree that this is a feminist issue. But does a feminist obligation to attend to the rights of the imprisoned extend only as far as pregnancy and labor? Or when she is caged for years and exploited for her labor, denied face-to-face visits from loved ones, held captive in a compound in the name of, quote, justice? If the answer to these questions is yes, then is it also a feminist issue when men are shackled during various health emergencies? Seizures, say. In 2014, a male inmate in Colorado died after undergoing several seizures while in restraints and receiving no medical treatment. Is it a feminist issue when so many men are raped while in prison? Or does feminism's responsibility begin and end with gender-based mistreatment? The prison system is racist and brutal by design, not by accident or mismanagement. Just as the court system regularly fails the most vulnerable because it was built to protect the powerful. The challenge of the 21st century is not to demand equal opportunity to participate in the machinery of oppression, revolutionary thinker Angela Davis has written. Rather, it is to identify and dismantle those structures. The book, Can We All Be Feminists? It's a collection of essays edited by Jane Eric Udori. Tom Hartman here with you. So this is what we are learning now as a consequence of the Justice Department and tip of the hat to Merrick Garland. Uh, well, actually, tip of the hat to the House Oversight Committee, which is who dug this stuff out. But these were turned over to them by the Justice Department, which had refused to turn this stuff over while Donald Trump was president and while Bill Barr was uh, the attorney general. But now we have the receipts. And what it shows... I mean, this is just amazing, is that on December 14th, Donald Trump, well, this is, uh, Judd Legum, in fact, has a great summary of this, by the way, over at popular.info today. On December 14th, Trump's personal assistant, Molly Michael, sent an email to then Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen. He had just fired Barr because Barr was like, no, apparently, I mean, we don't know, but uh, apparently this was the straw that broke Barr's back, as it were and caused him to leave was that Barr would not engage in a coup to overthrow an election. Or at least it looks that way. Or at least he wasn't enthusiastic enough. So that he sacks Barr and then his assistant sends this uh, email to the deputy attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, with a subject line from POTUS. And it's filled with all this just bat guano crazy stuff saying that the Michigan vote was uh, the Dominion voting machines and they were being manipulated by hackers in Italy and 
This all came out of a guy named Russell Ramsland Jr., a Republican businessman who uh, sold Tex-Mex food in London and uh, has a wellness technology that beams light into the human bloodstream. Honest to God. Two minutes after Donald Trump's assistant sent that document to the Attorney General's office, to the Department of Justice, two minutes later, quote, Associate Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue, through his assistant, sent the same documents to the U.S. attorneys for the Eastern and Western District of Michigan. In other words, the Justice Department said, okay, cool. Here, prosecutors, consider this. But that was just the beginning. I mean, after that, he tried to convince the Justice Department to file a brief with the U.S. Supreme Court, basically declaring null and void the elections in Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Nevada. I mean, there was this long rant associated with this. They ultimately did not file this with the Supreme Court. I think they realized how crazy it was. But what they show, what these emails show is that Donald Trump was dead serious about engaging in a coup in trying to overthrow the government of the United States. Now, there is a remedy for this. It is in the 14th Amendment. I will read it to you. You know, it's just a couple sentences from the 14th Amendment of what can be done. And I think we need to do it. So anyway, do you think that the uh, GOP has uh, gone over the edge? Is, are they going to go the way of the Whigs? How can a political party even survive when all they do is corrupt? Tom Harmon here with you. And uh, by the way, just a, well, I'll start out with what I had promised you, which is what we can do about what Trump is up to right now. I want to put just a, a screeching halt to all this nonsense. What Congress needs to do is embrace the 14th Amendment. Because we now know actually tried to commit a coup. He, he tried to overthrow the government of the United States. That's treason. This is what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says. There's a lot of extra words in here where it's like senator, representative, or vice president. So I'm going to just kind of abbreviate it. I'll give you the version with ellipses in it. No person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Now, back when Trump was, he wasn't actually acquitted, he was not convicted in the impeachment trial, there were at least eight Republican senators who suggested that, you know, if he'd still been in office, maybe we would have convicted him. There were a couple of others who said, yeah, maybe the 14th Amendment. I think it's time to say it. That's it. This guy is not fit to serve in office. He cannot serve in office. You know, just stop the whole charade. It'll prevent him from fundraising. It'll prevent him from, I, I would think Republicans would go along with this because it'll prevent him from basically hijacking the Republican Party and running it right straight into the ground. Or is he? Is what Trump's doing going to help the Republican Party? I think he's hurting it. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Uh, and finally, I want to show this with you and then I'll pick up your phone calls here. Uh, Chuck Schumer just announced... And he said he was going to convene a meeting with the 11 Democratic members of the Senate Budget Committee regarding the fiscal year 22 budget resolution. And the first of these negotiations that he was talking about, this is from Senator Schumer. He said the second track pulls in elements of President Biden's American Jobs and Families Plan. In other words, this is the infrastructure bill. And will be considered by the Senate even if it does not have bipartisan support. Schumer, in his kind of soft way, just basically said, we're going to do this. He continues, one subject is not up to debate. I will instruct members to ensure that any budget resolution puts the United States on track to reduce carbon pollution at a scale commensurate with the climate crisis. And, of course, the so-called moderate Republicans who are so-called negotiating with the Democrats to try to work out some kind of so-called compromise. We all know this is all BS, right? This is just the theater that they're doing to delay in the hopes that they can postpone this thing until the fall 
when really the 2022 election season has already started and nothing's going to get done. That's their goal. Get nothing done. Keep things as they are because the status quo, the fossil fuel industry loves the status quo. The billionaires uh, with low tax rates, pay, you know, paying one and two percent income taxes. They love the status quo. The Republicans have rigged the system and they want to keep it that way. So, anyhow, picking up your phone calls, Craig in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Craig, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, sir. Um, we all know the corruption coming out with uh, Trump right now. I'm wondering uh, why Ted Cruz and all the rest of them dropped out so fast and let him become the nomination or the nominee. I'm just curious why they dropped out. They got beat in primary after primary. Donald Trump had a very powerful message in 2016, Craig, in addition to the uh-huh. to, to big billionaire money behind him and, a, and, a, and a running a real scam on Facebook. He had borrowed a bunch of Bernie Sanders' lines. He, he, you know, he told people that the tax code was rigged against average middle-class Americans and promised that when he became president, he was going to cut taxes on working-class people and raise taxes on rich people. He said, he said it was going to give his, his, his friends a nosebleed, you know, and the, 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 high, the taxes would be so high. He said, it's going to hurt me terribly, but it's the right thing for the country. Remember all that? He, he, obviously, it's, it's not what he did. He did the exact opposite. He said that he was going to bring all of our jobs back home from China uh, and from Mexico. Instead, what he did is he passed a trade deal with Mexico that gives American companies, if you you have an American manufacturing plant and you move it to Mexico right now under Trump's new NAFTA deal, you get 50% off your income taxes. You get as your corporate income taxes. So he, again, did the exact opposite. Um, he promised that he was going to do away with Obamacare and replace it with something that would give every American, 100% of all Americans, comprehensive medical coverage, including dental and eyeglasses, and it would cost less than Obamacare. Obviously, he didn't right. do that. He didn't even try to do that. Instead, what he gave us is these, is these uh, you know, cheaper policies that don't cover things. <laughs> you can die if right. you get sick. So, but but he, yeah, his I, promises I, I, were very seductive. I agree with that. And when and when yeah, he I, and when he I, took I those promises against people like Ted Cruz, who weren't willing to engage in those kinds of, of lies, he won. He won the primary right. fair and square, I think. You think? Yeah. I, I, it just seemed all of a sudden funny why they just dropped out, and why would they have let him be a nominee anyway? Well, they they could you know look I mean? at the direction the polling was going, and yeah. and right. you know they they figured that he wasn't as crazy as it turned out he was. Um, uh, you know, in my opinion, Craig, thanks a lot for the call. It's nice to hear from you, Kathy in Forest Park, Illinois. Hey, Kathy, what's up? Hi. Hi. As long as the Democratic leadership continues allowing the lies to continue on, they have no reason to negotiate with Mitch McConnell. And when they don't, uh, as far as hoisting him on his own petard with this situation with the filibuster, what they need to do is they need to put forth immediately a filibuster that where uh, Joe Manchin can't hide. Yeah. And where they're, they're both forced, you know, to vote on it. But as long as, like when, you know, Trump is a grifter and shrugging your shoulders, there's nothing they can do about it. No, actually, there is. And that is they need to go after those representatives, including Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and uh, Ted Cruz, all the others, and call them out. Because, see, the thing is, the Republicans, they bring up a flamethrower saying, we're fighting for you. But meanwhile, when the Democrats do your, they don't look like they're fighting for the average citizen. Right. And they need to start fighting back with the truth, because that's what it's there for. Yeah. Uh, And that will take back the corruption of this nation. I'm with you. And this this is my rant that the Democrats need to start using the word corruption. They need to start really playing hardball with language and with the media. And they need to come, you know, they need to unify around basically three simple messages that they're going to carry into the 2022 election. The Republicans are doing that right now. You know, critical race. Oh, my God, black people are coming to get you. Basically, this is one of their messages, obviously. You know, socialism and Antifa, they're just playing culture war stuff to the hilt. Right. And Democrats need to need to be playing offense rather than just defense. I completely agree with you. Absolutely. Yep. Kathy, <laughs> thank you for the call. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. No, I think you're pretty much spot on with your description of the Republican Party. But the thing is, is you have the same problem I have. 
these issues are deep and there's context, okay? And if you look at like, all right, for example, yesterday, Kenyatta, the caller Kenyatta, he said something really fast that was so critically important. He said that, you know, because Republicans and conservatives are protesting critical race theory so much, that proves that it's necessary, okay? And I'm like, oh, that's the most key point. Look, critical race theory is a fact. I, I know the word theory is in there, but if you yeah. look at it objectively, it is a fact. Yeah, it now, is It is being the, set aside by pretty much everybody now, though, because it's become so badly damaged and polluted by Fox News lies. I mean, we, we had uh, Kino calling in yesterday, uh, literally repeating some of these Fox News lies. Um, he believed them. These people on Fox News are very credible. They look right into the camera and, 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 and say things that that are patently false, that are literally lies. And, you know, what's the average person to do? You know, they think people on TV well, are there to tell them the truth. Yeah, but, you know, would you say that the Magna Carta was essential to the uh, formation of the of the British government, the limited constitutional monarchy? Well, it was certainly yeah. a step in the so, path. It only applied to yeah. the top 1% of the British population at the time, you'll recall. But, yeah. But to say, yeah, slavery had nothing to do with the, the way our government was formed is just ridiculous. Now, yeah. on the obverse of yeah. that is the QAnon replacement theory, race replacement theory, which is completely fiction. It's fictitious. I know. Watch these. I know. And Tucker Carlson is pitching this thing. I agree. Yeah. David, the Fox News has gone completely racist. I mean, it's nuts. Dave, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Fox News has mentioned critical race theory 1,300 times in the past three and a half months. I'll get to that in just a second. Corky in Rochester, New York. Hey, Corky. Yeah. What's up? I'm totally outraged at what the Republicans are doing with these uh, state electorates where they can overturn the vote of a national election. Right. I am, too. How can you how can you overturn a national election just by your Senate vote? Or the your, your, the uh, Constitution, this would only apply to the election for the president. And the Constitution says that the states may determine who their electors are, basically however they choose. So you've got most states now, with the exception of two, you've got most states that say whoever gets the most votes in our state for president, they get all the electoral votes. In Maine, they've split it into two regions of Maine. It might be two congressional districts. And so they separate that. In, I think it's what, Kansas or Missouri? There's one of the states there in the Midwest. They also split it up. But everybody else does it that way. But literally, under the Constitution, a state could simply pass a law saying, or amend their Constitution, some are you know, within their Constitution, some are as laws. They could say, uh, from now on, this state will only send Republican electors to Washington, D.C. for the presidential elections. And it would be within the bounds of the Constitution. Well, that's not constitutional because it, uh, it it's is. a national election. I know, but it's like, the, you see, the Constitution does not envision a direct election. We don't, have the, we don't have the American people voting for president of the United States, Corky. We have the Electoral College voting for president of the United States. And the Electoral College is made up of individual electors. And those individual electors are, are people who don't hold public office, who are picked by, typically by the parties uh, to, to represent the state. And the states under the Constitution can decide whichever damn way they want. I mean, they could just say, these are our electors. And if you want proof of this, look at the Tilden Hayes election in, in 1872. In 1872, in the first round of that election, uh, Sam Tilden won the election. He won the popular vote and he won the electoral college vote. But Rutherford B. Hayes ended up president. That's what Trump was trying to do. He was trying to flip the vote just like they did in, in the election of 1872. Oh, I think we, we can't be exceptional if we're like everybody else. No, this is why we need the National Popular Vote Compact. And uh, you need to plug National Popular Vote into a, uh, into a search engine 
I think it's .com, but it might be .org, and one or the other of them is right, and the other one is a scam site. So be careful. Be very, very careful. But the national popular vote is where if you get enough states to represent enough electoral votes to put somebody into the White House who sign on to it, and we're a couple states short right now, then whoever wins the national popular vote will become president. Keep in mind, in, in the last eight elections for president, only once, and that was George Herbert Walker Bush in uh, 1988, only once has a Republican won the national popular vote. And that's why they're fighting it so vigorously. We would have had seven consecutive Democratic presidents if we had just gone with the popular vote instead of the Electoral College. Corky, I got to run, but thanks for the call. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Just to put a punctuation mark on what a scam the Republican Party has become and how races now come to the center of this with all their lies about what reinventing critical race theory as something that basically black people are using to beat white people up with. This is the pitch. Fox News. uh, This is just astonishing. Uh, uh, Fox News last week mentioned critical race theory 244 times. The week before was 170 times. Um, They are now up to over 1,300 mentions of critical race theory. Newt Gingrich said, it's being driven by people who want to brainwash your child. Right? If you could scare people about their kids. You know, uh, a couple of months ago, the Republicans were all trying to scare Americans that, you know, uh, trans kids are, are, you know, what, ruining kids' sports or some kind of nonsense. Like... It's just racist. Fox News contributor Miranda Devine says, teaching critical race theory warps the minds of American children as a recipe for social upheaval and mental illness. Tucker Carlson calls it a cult. Fox host Will Cain says it's modern day Jim Crow. Fox News has even promoted a pamphlet that echoes this whole white nationalist great replacement conspiracy theory that basically some black people and some Jews are getting together to replace white people in America with black people in particular and presumably Jewish people as well. The network repeatedly has amplified this lie that critical race theory teaches that, quote, one race is inherently superior to another, end quote. It does not. But this is all electoral strategy. This is crank up the white people. That's what the Republicans are all about because white people are still the majority of the United States. David in Woodland Hills, California. Hey, David, what's on your mind? What are the three things that Democrats need to do? You said Democrats need to do three things, and you forgot to list them. (laughs) Okay. I think, number one, we need to be saying, you know, everybody should have health care. Number two, we need to be saying nobody should go in debt uh, going to college. And, you know, number three? Corruption? Yeah, build back the country and build it back in a way that is electric rather than, you know, inhaling fossil fuels. Number four would be corruption, the corrupt Republican Party. Well, that's a campaign strategy. You can run against corruption, but I'm talking about when you're saying, what are you offering the American people? Here's what we're offering the American people. And, you know, the Democrats are pretty good at keeping on message up until about six months ago. And then, you know, all this scattershot stuff came in from everywhere in sight. But I think, you know, build the country back, give everybody health care and give everybody a decent access to a decent education. Those are winning messages. They poll well among Republicans. 
Right. And you've said them before. And I believe you need to say them every day until the Democrats get it. The challenge is trying to keep Democrats on message. <laughs> you know, Republicans are so bought into this idea of patriarch and hierarchy that, you know, they put a man at the top and he says, you must do this. And they all say, OK, we'll do that. And, you know, we'll say that. We'll, you know, whatever it may be. Democrats, on the other hand, it's the old problem of herding cats. You know, it's you've got the Democratic Party embraces diversity in a whole variety of ways, including diversity of thought. And as a consequence, you have different Democrats who have different priorities and they're pushing different things. But I think that, you know, combining the climate crisis with the economic crisis is absolutely brilliant. Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan. And this has to get through the Congress. This has to get through and passed. That will, and then you'd be campaigning on the success of that and the implementation of that going into 2022. And then also start talking about canceling all student loan debt. Joe Biden, by the way, could cancel all student loan debt up to $50,000 in the United States, or at least all federal student loan debt tomorrow. There, you know, he could, he could sign an executive order to do that. And we need to start leaning on him to do that. David, thank you for the call, because the more Democrats can do for people, the more they'll get elected. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? So, Tom, I wanted to get into the internal threat of a fascist takeover of, of America. But first, I want to give you uh, one more example of how Reagan rigged his victory over Carter in 1980. I'm sure you know about this, but I haven't heard you mention it. But when Rick Perlstein was promoting his book, Reaganland, he gave an interview and he talked about how the Reagan camp had stolen Carter's debate uh, mm -hmm. notes. So so basically, Reagan knowledge. being the yeah, but, but um, you know, and Ray, I mean, a lot of people don't remember it, but Reagan being the actor that he was, he basically was able to rehearse his lines for that debate, and it was only a week before the election. So certainly the treason that you speak of involving, often speak of involving the hostage situation and this debate, you know, rehearsal performance definitely swung the election for, to Reagan. So, yeah. you know. I think those two factors. That's a good point. I had completely forgotten about that, Jeff. Thank you for the reminder. Yeah, I think Perlstein said that going into the debate, it was it, the the polls were pretty close only a week before the election. And oh, then Carter was that, ahead until about yeah. a month before the election. Right, and then because of the treason with the hostages, it, yep. it got closer, and then the debate kind of. Well, it was over the, the main the main tipping point was when Carter tried to rescue them, and the helicopter went down in the desert. That was the point at which it uh, became, you know, it started looking like Jimmy Carter was not the strong character that, he, you know, he was campaigning as. Now, I but, I think Perlstein, but I think Perlstein said even, even with a week to go, that debate, that was the one and only debate, and it was only a week before the election, it was still a very close race. Mm -hmm. And I think that helicopter situation had happened prior to that. So It had, yeah. But, but any but anyway, Tom, you know, I believe we need to amp up our rhetoric. Do you think mm -hmm. it's hyperbole to start asking ourselves as Democrats if we're going to be, whether we're going to be the party of Neville Chamberlains and keep appeasing these anti-democracy forces in the GOP, or are we going to start standing up and fighting back and, and become a party of Winston Churchill's? You know, and it's been a while since you've mentioned it, but for people who can't imagine it happening here, they really should check out that HBO miniseries from last year called The Plot Against America, based on the excellent novel by Philip Roth. Yeah, but this is that, that's the one where the uh, Jewish family is living in the United States in the 40s and and the America First movement takes over. Is that the, the one you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. It, I, it, we it, watched that. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it imagines if if Lindbergh, the American first candidate, would have won the 1940 election, right. I believe. Yeah, and so it really can help you extrapolate what what we're up against right, right now. But do you think it's too strong a language to you know start calling these people within our party who want to keep trying to negotiate with these you know extremely anti-democratic forces that they only want to weaken Biden's agenda. They're, they're somewhere between Neville Chamberlain and I forget his first name, Mr. Quisling, the uh, Norwegian turncoat. But no, I don't think it's hyperbolic at all, Jeff. I'm very disappointed, frankly, that the, that the Democrats have allowed themselves to get sucked into this BS game that Mitch McConnell's playing. Jeff, thanks for the call. We'll be back. book for the Tom Hartman Book Club today is A Nation Forged by Crisis, A New American History by Jay Sexton. And I'm reading from the introduction. This is page nine. 
The quest for national security and global power, America's shifting position in the international economy, and fluctuations in immigration have made the United States the nation that it is today. Americans' foreign relations have conditioned its history not only in their cumulative effects over the long haul, but also as a result of their volatility. In periods of crisis, America's position in the world has lurched in unexpected directions. For as inexorable as the rise of the United States appears in retrospect, there have been contingent moments in which the very existence of our nation was up for grabs. This is the essence of crisis. The world turned upside down. The known replaced by the unknown. Panic reigning as people struggle to maintain their balance and shifts in the very ground beneath their feet. It came with a speed and ferocity that left men dazed, New York Times correspondent Elliot Bell wrote of Wall Street's catastrophic collapse in October of 1929. Quote, the market seemed like an insensate thing that was wreaking a wild and pitiless revenge upon those who thought to master it, end quote. Crises are contagious, spreading like viruses from one realm to another. It's not without reason that the word crisis was associated with medical conditions and health scares in the 19th century. Each of the periods under consideration in this book were less a singular crisis than a set of interlinked crises. A political crisis could trigger an economic panic, which in turn could intensify social conflict, and so on. As these pandemics spread through the body politic, crisis itself was normalized, becoming an almost accepted characteristic of an age. Just as foreign crises have spread to the United States, domestic ones have spilled across its borders, unsettling foreign countries and peoples, as well as reconfiguring America's connections to the world. Consider the fateful winter of secession that followed the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln. The crisis over slavery that divided the Union into warring sections that led to a series of sharp reversals in America's position in the global system. The foreign capital that had rushed into the roaring American economy in the preceding decades suddenly began to flee. Indeed, more capital left the United States in 1860 to 1862 than came into it, also a once-in-a-century occurrence. One of the world's most valuable commodities and America's largest exports, southern cotton, was confined to the ports of the Confederacy as a result of Richmond's ill-fated diplomatic strategy, leading to unemployment and social unrest in the British textile town of Lancashire. The most unexpected reversal was how the national security that the United States had attained after the war against Mexico in the 1840s was suddenly imperiled with European powers encroaching once again upon the Western Hemisphere. Meanwhile, the Confederate emissaries across the Atlantic in search of alliance with Britain. Our country, Secretary of State William Seward lamented in early 1861, after having expelled all European powers from the continent, now threatened to relapse into an aggravated form of its colonial experience and like India, Turkey, China, and Italy, become the theater of transatlantic intervention and rapacity. A wider view of American history that looks beyond the nation's borders brings into focus not only the migration patterns, economic flows, and international rivalries that have connected the United States to the world, but also those rare moments in which the very existence of the nation was in question. Perhaps none was more pregnant with implications than the autumn of 1877, when the fate of the Patriots' bid for independence hung in the balance. Having proclaimed their independence to the world the previous 4th of July, their cause had stalled on the battlefield and in the diplomatic courts of the old world. I think the game is pretty near up, Washington privately confessed at year's end. To accomplish their independence is not quite so easy as to declare it, the British philosopher Jeremy Bentham haughtily remarked. But then a series of events forever changed the course of modern history. The stunning Patriot victory at the Battle of Saratoga in October. The drafting of the Articles of Confederation in November that, for all its limitations, further demonstrated the political resolve of the Americans. And most of all, the alliance signed with France in February 1778, which provided the Patriots with the resources, military assistance, and naval power that ultimately tipped the scales in their favor. There are comparable Saratoga moments in other crises in U.S. history, as we shall see. These contingent moments played out in their own distinctive ways, but are joined by a common denominator that has been curiously forgotten in our age of U.S. global power. Foreign states and people have played decisive roles in the critical moments of American history. As we make our way through our own era of global instability in an unprecedentedly interconnected world, there's perhaps no more important lesson from the past to keep in mind. Crisis may beget crisis, Franklin Roosevelt said, as his administration transitioned from battling the Great Depression to entering the Second World War. But the progress underneath, 
does not wholly halt. It does go forward, end quote. Like so many of Roosevelt's public statements, this one reveals a truth even as it conceals others. The United States came out on the other side of its greatest crises as a stronger and more efficiently organized nation, as Roosevelt suggested. The process of mobilizing resources to counter threats catalyzed innovations in political economy, such as the creation of a national financial system during the Civil War, and the economic reforms of the New Deal. The book is A Nation Forged by Crisis by Jay Sexton. Michael in Memphis, Tennessee. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hey, Tom. Man, where do I start? Mary Garland, mm. the Justice Department. You know, I'm a, I'm a black person. I'm a black male. I live in Memphis, Tennessee, probably one of the most ass-backwards, inbred places in the world. And you see what the Republicans are doing with these voting laws. And it's blatant. It's, it's not like they're doing this in, in secret rooms. And they got, you know, Fox News, Tucker Carlson cheerleading for them every night. Sean yeah. Handy cheerleading every night. I live in yeah. Memphis. Every station here is conservative radio. Every, every, every show is conservative radio. And they're doing this in broad daylight. Now yep. they're loosening gun restrictions where anybody can have a gun. Yep. And they're deputizing these ignorant people to watch over the black folk, you know, when they mm -hmm. vote. Mm -hmm. and Oh, the, the GOP has asked for 10,000 volunteers to be poll watchers. And yeah, the yeah, bigger so and uglier you are, the more they want you. It, it goes back to slavery days. Slave oh, yeah. patrols, patter rollers. Yep. I, mean, it's, I mean, it's like they're rolling back the clock. Trump put 200-plus federal judges on the bench. So if you sue, it's legal. Yep. And you got the Supreme Court. You don't have any recourse. And as Mer and I was telling, talking earlier, Merrick Garland, and I was never really impressed with him in the first place. But uh, you hear leaks every now and then, every other Friday about Matt Getz. You know, mm. is anything really going to happen? I think so. Uh, you hear stuff with, with Roger Stone. Is anything really going to happen? Probably not. He's been pardoned. Right, he's been pardoned. But you know, if you continue to break laws. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't excuse you, you know, from, from further prosecution if you break new laws, right? Yeah, I don't recall if his pardon came before or after January 6th. Yeah, see, and, and that's that why I don't critical. understand. Yeah, and I, and I sit back and I look at the Justice Department because, again, you and I are regular people. Uh, we break the law. They come with the thunder. It's done and it's over with. But if you yeah. have money, like Trump and his family, they get to run out the clock. Trump is a lifetime. He has spent a lifetime running out the clock. Yeah, he and really has. He, he literally has. Yeah, and right. and Bill Barr too. You got I mean, William go, Barr now. look at look at what it Barr did in 1992. I mean, William Sapphire. Ask old folks about William Sapphire. Brilliant. You know, one of America's most famous commentators and journalists for the New York Times. And he called him Cover Up Barr, Cover, uh, cover Up General Barr instead of Attorney General, um, because yeah, that's, that's what Bill Barr did. Yeah. And yeah. people forget, I mean, how seriously now, because I got guys in the office. Well, Mike, you have to understand, no, it was treason, yep. period. Don't yep. tell me Oliver North followed orders. It was treason. Yep. He went in eyes wide open, all of them, yep. Weinberger. And, and that's the thing. At what point does justice come? Because it doesn't you know, look like Mayor, Mayor Garland is going to do anything. Step by step. Well, first of all, at least the Justice Department is in reasonable hands. Uh, I'm... I haven't been able to figure this out and what the uh, right. Justice Department is going to do about it. I've got CNN on in the studio here and just keep track of the chirons in case, you know, some big thing happens. But I suspect he's also dealing with the Justice Department. I mean, you have natural attrition, not to mention people getting fired, but, you know, you have people who just leave. And I know that there were a number of people in the Justice Department fairly high up who were so offended by stuff Trump was doing that, that they left. Good people. Who did Trump replace those people with? They're still there, right? So, right. I mean, this is, you, you, can, you can just watch you know, Rachel Maddow just really struggling with this in her head, you know, whenever this topic comes up. I am too. You know, is Merrick Garland, the, you know, who was suggested by Orrin Hatch, the Republican, as the guy to put, uh -huh. is he just kind of slow walking stuff or is he stuck in an environment where all the people around him are doing it? I honestly Isn't don't. Orrin Hatch the same guy that wanted to change the Constitution, so, um, wasn't Arnold Schwarzenegger running for president? No, no. Merrick Garland Which was a federal judge. 
Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about Orrin Hatch. Oh, Orrin Hatch. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Among others. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, not really. When he when he got his blessing, like, okay. Right. And nothing against Obama, but Obama was, and people got really angry. I to say this on the cult, to Nicole's side. People got really angry with Dr. Cornell West when he said about former President Obama. He understood his position, but he could have showed a lot more courage than he did. Yeah. And well, Mayor Garland was one of them. I think he was between a rock and a hard place through much of his presidency. I will cut him a lot of slack, Michael, but I do have... Well, well, we'll just leave it at that. Michael, I got to run. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for the call. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.